Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Um, my name is Sahar Khan, and I'm going to be moderating today's event. And I'm a research fellow in the Cato um, Institute's uh, Foreign Policy and Defense Department. Um, it is my absolute pleasure today to introduce you to Mr. Mohammed Machin uh, Chian. He is a research, um, senior research scholar at University of Pittsburgh Center for Governance and Markets. He is also an active journalist, and he just recently returned from Iran. And he has also written several books on privatization, um, uh, consumerism, um, constitutionalism, and economic reform. Now, as most of you know, um, Iran has been facing, a, has been involved in a great deal of protest currently. Because last year, last in September, Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, um, was killed by the morality police um, there. And that started a great deal of protest. Because of those protests that continue to this day, um, about 20,000 individuals have been arrested. About um, 500 have been killed by security forces. 18 have been sentenced to death, and four already have been killed. And um, Mohammed here actually just came from Iran, and he has experienced um, some of the protests firsthand. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and as we start this discussion, I also want to introduce um, my colleague here, um, Mr. Mustafa Eichel. Um, he is um, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, where he researches um, Islam, modernity, and its relationship with libertarianism as well. So thank you both for joining us today. So, um, Mohammed, I wanted to talk to you um, a little bit about your experience um, in Iran. And before we sort of dive into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your story, and how you found yourself here today? Oh, sure. First of all, uh, hello, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, second, uh, my story is actually, may, you may find it interesting, uh, because uh, it started I started as a frustrated teenager. And uh, at the time, I, I really felt like uh, I was alone. But of course, these days, we know at least uh, teenagers and young people in Iran, they know they're not alone anymore. But uh, I was frustrated from the situation, human condition there. And uh, I tried to look up uh, topics. I, I was very much interested in liberty. and individual autonomy, uh, freedom of religion, of course. And uh, I looked into it, and uh, somewhere I found the name of this guy called John Locke. And I tried to look him up, and uh, I couldn't find much. Uh, and it took me a couple of years, thanks to a new thing called internet, to, I'm not sure, to be honest with you, but it may have been Cato's uh, libertarianism.org. I'm not sure if it was around at that time, but it was something similar. I found it there. At the time, I had no idea this school of thought had a name. But nonetheless, I found uh, a letter by John Locke, started to read it, uh, started reading it, and uh, it was a difficult read for me. So I had to buy a second, a bigger dictionary in order to be able to understand it. But even then, I had to write down uh, certain passages in order to piece it together later and uh, make sense of it. What I ended up with, first of all, started my career, because I ended up with a, more or less a translation of John Locke. Uh, but also, what I found out, and I shared it with Mustafa uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, to my surprise, he had a similar experience. 
it was as if someone else, it wasn't something that was written 300 years ago. It was as if this guy wrote it last week. And for me, it was that personal. So long story short, I published it, of course, online anonymously. And a couple of years later, I learned that uh, when John Locke for the first time published that, it was anonymous. That made it all the more personal. And I became even more uh, interested, more uh, infatuated with translating and uh, stuff and talking about these things. And then uh, I started a blog and started talking about these things. And then, because of the scrutiny, because of the censorship and stuff like that, uh, I learned I could pick and choose. If I chose with care, I could uh, you know, just translate someone talking about these things three, 400 years ago, 200 years ago, and by doing that, talk about things that, is, that are happening around me. Uh, so that's how I started as a translator and then uh, public intellectual and journalist and the rest is history. Well, that's wonderful. Um, and I also, before I um, go to you, Mustafa, I also wanted to say thank you for those of you who are here in person. It's been a, a long time since we've done some of these in-person events. Um, and for those of you who are joining online, thank you also. And for those who will be um, tweeting and using social media, please use the hashtag CatoFP um, as you go on with the discussion. Um, Mustafa, I wanted to turn to you because I know that you and Muhammad actually know each other. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that connection and how you met? Sure. Uh, thank you, Sahar. And you know, thanks to our colleagues who organized this event. And thanks for coming, being with us today. And thanks, Muhammad, for you know, what you've been doing in Iran. And I've been following. I mean, the last time we were together, it was an Istanbul conference in 2016. It was on the roots of liberty in Islam, I think, something you and I were there, several friends of ours. Since then, our countries went down, well, both of them in, in, in their own ways. Uh, Iran worse, I think. And uh, I'm glad that you are safely out of Iran because you lived your life in Iran, but until recently it became so impossible and dangerous that you know, thank God you're here today. Uh, and I know because of your writing, you've been detained, you've Uh, it's it's easy to write about John Locke here, and thanks to John Locke and that whole tradition which <laughs> built here, but it's not that easy to write about the ideas there. It's not about the persona of Locke, but the idea of uh, freedom, that individuals should not be coerced against their real will in the name of God, in the name of government or the proletariat, and, and that's a very powerful idea, but uh, it's his particularly difficult to articulate and defend that in certain parts of the world. Iran is certainly one of those. So uh, thank God you're safe and sound and you're here with us today. And, and you've been a voice for Cato in Iran, by the way, too. You translated a lot of the Cato Institute's publications. So I, I appreciate that. And I'm thankful for that. Yes, and touching too. on that, you've been such a prominent advocate of, of liberty and freedom in Iran. But with your recent experience, I know that you've been arrested, you've been detained. Um, would you mind talking about that a little bit? What has your experience been, especially as the protests are continuing on? And there's so many people who bravely continue to go on the streets of Iran. Um, sure. Uh, first of all, usually when we talk about getting detained or uh, getting beaten up or uh, receiving threats, in the free world, in the developed world, it is an oddity. They, people think uh, it should be a big deal. 
but working as a journalist or having a public life in a place like Iran, it is expected. It's not a special thing. And it is mundane. There are tortures, there are uh, threats, uh, everything uh, you receive. Uh, it is so mundane. After a while, you, I'm sad to say that you kind of get used to it. And uh, every time, same things, every time, same threats, and uh, so forth. But at least, uh, whenever I got questioned, I did something for it. And the situation here uh, today in Iran, a lot of people are getting detained, getting arrested, getting tortured, and getting killed. Not for saying something, for just being there. Masa Amini, you mentioned her name. And uh, her own crime was that uh, being a girl. And that was it. She, she didn't do anything. So in that way, uh, it was expected. I knew what I was getting into. And uh, every now and then, I tasted uh, their cruelty, cruel and unusual punishments. So I'm happy it's, uh, you know, it's in the past. Well, we're, we're happy that you're here as well. Thank you. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about the um, regime's policy of religious coercion, its history, what it's looked like, and how it's evolved over time. How do you see it as, as a person, um, as an advocate for religious freedom and rights of people to move around freely? How do you see this evolution? Um, and what is sort of your take on it? Yes, I think, so maybe I'll repeat the question, sorry, Sahar. Can you sorry. all hear me yeah. now? Yeah. Yes, okay, so sorry about that. Um, so yeah, I wanted to ask you, Mohammed, about the regime's decades-old policy of religious coercion, um, such as the imposing of the hijab by law and severely punishing um, blasphemy and apostasy. Um, now, Mustafa has argued that these measures have made Iranian society um, not more religious, but rather less religious. Um, what is your take on that, and what are your observations in terms of more religious observance, observance in, in Iran? Uh, absolutely, I completely agree with you on that point. And uh, we have abundant uh, data to support that. And uh, all the anecdotal experiences also points to the same direction. Almost anybody that travels to Iran makes the same observation that alcoholic beverages are readily available. Uh, I think it was a writer for Economist that uh, mentioned that uh, your alcohol could get uh, to your house sooner than your pizza. And uh, we all know something about that uh, in Iran. And hijab isn't taken seriously is another thing. Uh, it is uh, absolutely true. And uh, even surveys done by hardliners within the regime indicate that more than the best number they could come up with. And mind you, when you're signing, you know, uh, making ticks on a survey, you should be very careful in Iran. And nonetheless, the best re result they could come up with was 70% of people completely reject mandatory hijab in Iran. 70%. Other numbers we have indicate uh, even more people. We have 80%, of course. We have 85%. And I assure you, if there are 15% of Iranian people uh, really in favor of uh, mandatory hijab. They're not, they're definitely not uh, the, the young generations or the 
uh, future of Iran, basically. So you wanted to say yeah, something? Sure. I mean, Locke actually writes about this again in Letter Concerning Toleration. He says, he's, he's criticizing the people who want a Christian commonwealth, and he says all the, I mean, uh, the, the coercive measures that the state uses, he says, leads to the contempt of his divine majesty. Like, it leads to contempt. Like, when you, when you create a religious regime, which tends to be authoritarian, uh, which forces religion on people, and although they don't want, it doesn't make them more religious. It makes them less religious, and it makes them contemptuous even of it. I mean, some, somebody can be totally secular, that's totally fine, but Cuban can still respect, you know, religious people. And the, but actually, these uh, regimes like Iran end up creating societies that are really angry at it, right? And so it's actually counterproductive, I mean, what, what they're doing. And I... I mean, we see this in Iran, we see this in parts of the world. In my home country, Turkey, I mean, actually, um, it's not comparable to Iran in the sense that what has happened in Turkey is still milder, quite milder than Iran, but there has been a return of Islam to power moment, right, in the past 20 years, especially in the past 10 years. Um, so you see a government building mosques everywhere and... Wearing a hijab is now an advantage, not a disadvantage, as it was before. And both of are wrong, obviously. It should be not the government's business. Uh, and and our very populist president always says we will raise pious generations through state power, of course, and opening these state schools. Good luck with that. Uh, well, exactly. What is I mean? What has happened in Turkey? That I mean, there's a new movement among Turkish youth. They are becoming deists. You know. Uh, it, like they believe in a god, but not religion, right? That's a very enlightenment, you know, concept. So that is now flourishing in Turkey. And actually, uh, the supporters of the government are saying, whose conspiracy is this? Like, how are the imperialists are cooking this up? Well, it is your conspiracy or your, you know, unwise policies. Uh, I mean, the, 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 if you create an authoritarian government that is corrupt, so people don't respect it, and authoritarian and also trying to force people to, into something that they don't want, it, it's, it's, it is counterproductive. And Iran is, I mean, uh, Iran, a lot of surveys indeed, as I've written, as Mohammed himself written, show that there is widespread secularization in Iranian society, uh, which, of course, makes the regime quite uh, unhappy about it. There is a very interesting tide of conversion to Christianity. And, of course, converts go through a lot of, terrible experiences there because actually it's a crime to convert to another religion. So it can put you in jail even on the death row. Uh, so we are seeing, uh, I mean, I think Iran is a sad lesson for the broader, I think, Muslim world, right? I mean, if you have regimes like Iran, where you have the Taliban, uh, Saudi Arabia, or any regime that actually somehow uses religion to justify its authoritarian power and also imposes its, un its narrow understanding of religion, by the way. And let's not forget, I mean, in Iran, it's not even Islam as such, but Shiite Islam, and a, and a version of it. And Sunnis are happy with that, too. And in Saudi Arabia, it's the other way around. So, I mean, I see Iran as an amazing story of uh, a lesson that we need to bring Islam and liberty together. Otherwise, it's destructive for society and even Islam itself. 
I think that's a great point. And um, I'm from Pakistan, and so Pakistan also, Iran's neighbor. Yeah. We has, forget Pakistan, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a great deal of, of religious laws on the books. You can certainly uh, go to jail for blasphemy, for apostasy. Um, in Pakistan's constitution, you have it written that there's a community of Muslims, the Ahmadiyya community. It is unconstitutional to be an Ahmadi Muslim, um, and, and they're officially declared as non-Muslims, which... We um, have Yes, which I think is ridiculous that this is the government that is declaring a group of individuals um, as, as non-Muslims. So in terms of religious coercion, um, Certainly, I think uh, Pakistan also has a lot of lef lessons to offer, similar to Turkey, and we, we are sort of seeing a very troubled trend in terms of the impact of religious coercion and whether or not it's making people more religious. And to your point about um, accessibility of alcohol, I think in Pakistan there's similar stories. You can get your alcohol faster than, than pizza. One um, detail about that is that also people die of bootleg alcohol in Iran. Mm -hmm. That also, I mean, that's another unintended consequence of trying to make society more pious in the way you define it. Right, right absolutely. But um, um, Mustafa, I wanted to, um, and Mohammed, actually, I wanted to ask both of you about Shia clerics um, themselves. Um, and it says that there are more liberal ones that oppose religious dictatorship and, and coercion. Um, and you have engaged with, with, with them as well. So can you talk a little bit about um, the brighter side um, in terms of your engagement with Shia clerics, what they say, what their stance is on um, Iran's sort of uh, religious um, evolution. Uh, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, we have a cloudy day today, and uh, it, is, it would be difficult to find a bright side in, in uh, that area as well. Uh, on the previous note about the alcohol, we have also some interesting economic aspect to it because um, everything, we have price control and the price of everything is set by the government. However, we have a huge black market because almost everything a normal human being would want is illegal and uh, we have a high inflation, so everything is getting uh, more expensive. However, the black market, the prices are more or less stable which is very ironic if you want to buy bacon or alcohol, the price of which isn't uh, growing as high as inflation or uh, drugs and stuff like that, for, uh, for example. As for Shia clerics, yes, uh, in fact, I got into some trouble uh, because I reached out and uh, tried to, uh, to get uh, their reaction about the situation. And uh, we know for a fact that, uh, let me say this to preface, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's interpretation of Shia Islam has been promoted as, uh, because they have a, for, for the past uh, almost five decades, because they have a lot of resources. They have been pushing this idea that his understanding, his interpretation is the main line, is the orthodoxy, for lack of a better word. However, his understanding, his interpretation is very radical and has nothing to do with the traditional, not that traditional Shia Islam has no problems or it's... I would be the first to point out the flaws. However, Ayatollah Khomeini's interpretation has nothing to do with that. It was a very radical understanding. So The interpretation that the uh, religious scholar should be the head of the top, the guiding jurist of the state. Exactly, yeah. the philosopher king idea. That was never... Belayat Faqih. Yes, or the absolute guardianship. And uh, 
people in the United States, when I want to uh, talk about guardianship, I, I bring up Brittany because they're familiar with the case of the guardianship with the parents and so forth. Same thing, but with an Ayatollah being the guardian to 80 plus million people. And uh, so his understanding in many ways was very radical and irregular, and it was never accepted by the highest ranking religious leaders in Shia tradition, much less in other sects. And uh, so his teacher, traditionally, Shia uh, religious leaders never meddle in matters of politics. The doctrine of quietism, they call it. And Ayatollah Khomeini couldn't start his career, his political career, until his teacher died. His teacher, Ayatollah Uljirdi. And uh, to give you a sense, back in 50s, when the, uh, the issue of the nationalization of oil was uh, on the table in Iran, they asked Ayatollah Brujerdi, the Grand Ayatollah Brujerdi, his the highest uh, Shia cleric, to weigh in on the matter and say something. And uh, you know what he said? He said, why would I say something about a matter about which I know nothing? So he refused to talk uh, or offer any opinions about the nationalization of oil. They never meddled. Uh, with matters of politics. And they had cordial relations with the courts, with the uh, Shah and so forth. And after him, the biggest Ayatollah, the highest uh, ranking Ayatollah was Ayatollah Hui, again, the teacher of Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Khamenei, the current supreme leader. He was around during the Islamic revolution. He rejected the idea of absolute guardianship, guardianship in general, uh, in the sense that Ayatollah Khomeini understood it. And his successor, Ayatollah Sistani, who is around, is, uh, lives in Najaf, in Iraq. Uh, he rejected the idea. And uh, back in 20, 2003 in Iraq, when uh, it was on, they, they were discussing uh, uh, creating an Islamic state in Iraq, he rejected it. So what I'm saying is the main line in Shia clerics, uh, they don't uh, support Ayatollah Khomeini's idea and his interpretation, which has been the status quo for the past four or five and decades. Also on the the current burning issue of uh, coerced or imposed hijab, there is also Shia clerics who think the, the woman should be able to choose their dress, right? Is, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. There are uh, interpretations supporting it. There are interpretations uh, leaving it to people's choice. Because let me just uh, give you this as the summary of uh, how it worked, uh, the traditional way of doing things. We had competing Ayatollahs, competing authorities in overlapping jurisdictions. This is, again, it has flaws, but especially to a libertarian, it's a magnificent system. You have different authorities, each overlapping jurisdictions, and people subscribe to them. And uh, how they are funded, they're funded by people's uh, donations and voluntary taxes, again. We're libertarian, the concept of uh, voluntary tax, it has been tried uh, to a great success. Ayatollah Khomeini never liked it, though, and uh, a lot of other uh, people in, of his ilk. Uh, but nonetheless, they didn't like that system. They wanted, a more, they wanted more power. They wanted so... They but, wanted government money. Exactly. <laughs> they and wanted the government itself and the money, of course, and the oil and all that too. So you don't exactly need to. You don't need with. donations of the people, so you don't care about the people. 
you actually exactly. dictate to them. So sorry, I just wanted to. Yeah, oh, no, I agree. Yeah. That, that's exactly <clears throat> what happened. And also, I mean, there are really prominent intellectuals out of Iran. I mean, Mohsen Kadavar, he's an Ayatollah himself. He lives actually in the U.S. who's written extensively on criticizing all these coercive, uh, from apostasy to blasphemy laws and uh, coercive hijab and all these things. I mean, so there is the idea out there uh, whether its time has come in a given society. Of course, that, that's a, a different question, but, but it's important to put those ideas out there and, 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 and make them accessible to people, which you've been doing. In that, that is true. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, it should, I think, be mentioned that since a lot of those ayatollahs agree or disagree with the current uh, trends, because a lot of them for the past few decades have, been, have links to the public budget. They, uh, during the past uh, few months, a lot of them refrained from expressing uh, very strong views because they, they're, they're no longer independent. They're, not, they're no longer competing powers, authorities. So uh, effectively, I think by uh, making an Islamic political structure, they have uh, made Ayatollahs very ineffective. Subservient to the top authority, yeah. exactly. So my other, and I don't want to uh, dominate and mo monopolize all of our time here, but I do have a couple more questions for you, and then I'll open it up to our audience, and we have a couple of questions online as well. Um, but my second last question um, is that another um, aspect of the Iranian regime that you have talked about and criticized um, is its almost communist nature, um, as opposed to the free market heritage in the Islamic tradition. Um, so do you think that this is part of the problem, and can you talk a little bit about um, the free market um, tradition in Islam? Uh, absolutely, that's a, a great question. As for the uh, tradition, um, yes, Ayatollah Khomeini had to look beyond the tradition, of, uh, especially in Shia, to find inspiration, to draw inspiration uh, because of uh, what he wanted to, uh, to create. And at the time, there are several important figures, and uh, these figures have a lot of disagreements but one thing they agree with, uh, I'll tell you about. Uh, one of these figures is Ali Shariati. He grew up in the movement of uh, God-fearing socialists, and he uh, criticized traditional clerics to be very inactive when it comes to politics. He thought they could. Uh, the other figure is Ayatollah Mutahari, the ideologue of the revolution. And by the way, Ali Shariati, until this day, is. Uh, the, because Ayatollah Khomeini is the founder of the revolution. He's the leader of the revolution. He's not the teacher of the revolution. That honor goes to Ali Shariati. And the ideologue of re the revolution is Ayatollah Mutahari. He also uh, criticized the clerics not to, pay, not to take a more active part in uh, politics. He also criticized both Al Shariati and uh, Mutahari, both thought the fact that the religious leaders are at the mercy of people's donations and Bazaar's support. That's the market, yeah. yeah. Exactly. They cannot, because they, everything they want to say, they have to take into account the feelings of uh, their followers, their donors, and the Bazaar. So, so Ayatollah Khomeini found back. the inspiration he was looking for not in John Locke, but the Soviet Union. Exactly. Is that correct? So actually he acquired the Soviet model combined with Islamic concepts, and that's the structure of the Islamic group. Is that correct? I mean, Absolutely. 
uh, he already liked yeah. uh, the he idea the of the philosopher king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, the, the way to do it, and the other thing is, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini so famously was very much uninterested in the machinery of governance, in the way to organize society and how to plan your economy, yeah. that sort of things, he wasn't interested. So he left that part to the team, and the team were, uh, the revolution was uh, dominated by left ideologies of secular and religious both, uh, but in any case, that is uh, exactly what we ended Which up today, today, I think, explains the Revolutionary Guards controlling a big chunk of the economy and, 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 and also uh, that whole economic structure. It, it, clerics cannot speak out because they are all you know, tied to the government forces, uh, exactly. funds and all that. And uh, I'll give you another example. For example, the institution of private property in Islam, as you well know, you both know, is as old as Islam. It is sacrosanct the idea of private property, the institution of private property. Uh, after the revolution, they seized, confiscated property and with flimsiest of justifications. And uh, the argument, of course, wasn't theological at the time. The argument was, these are imperialist capitalist pigs and we need to get rid of them. And these are people's pro uh, property. This is not Islam's rhetoric. Uh, the other thing, uh, even hijab, because during the revolution, mandatory hijab was never on the menu. But after the revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini, when he argued for hijab, when he introduced uh, mandatory hijab, a lot of, uh, especially among uh, the educated elite, academics and types and such, uh, they agreed with him, even though they were secular Marxists mostly. Because Ayatollah Khomeini saw the modern woman typically more active in the society, uh, typically, his words, not mine, with makeup and uh, Western clothes as a symbol of imperialism and capitalism. And they couldn't tolerate that symbol everywhere they looked. And that symbol happened to be very attractive. So they kind of had to get rid of it. So a lot of secular people very educated people agreed with Ayatollah Khomeini. On the from a Marxist religion. point of view. From yeah. the Marxist, yeah, because it was anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist, yeah, yeah. as they put it. Well, that's, um, that's, that's great. Thank you for explaining that. And this takes me then to my last question, and then I'll open it up to the floor, which is the protests that we are seeing today stem from Masa Amini and stem from um, the hijab and she was arrested essentially for not wearing the hijab properly and the morality police arrested her, detained her and during detention they beat her so much that um, she had a concussion and because of that she passed away. So a healthy 22 year old, uh, according to her family, a healthy 22 year old um, was suddenly um, dead within, uh, a few, within 24 hours essentially of being um, arrested. So these protests that we're seeing today, um, this is not the first time that uh, Iranians have gone to the street to protest. Um, the protests of today, are they different from the protests of 2009, of 2019? And if so, in your view, how are they different? That is a great question because I've, I've been told that uh, you Iranians, you're in the streets every other year and uh, what are you doing? So it's just repeating itself. Uh, and uh, no, uh, to answer your question, it's not uh, just uh, repeating itself. 
And uh, not only protests, and not only what uh, people are talking about, but also their, the, the way they protest, but also people's demands have been evolving. You mentioned uh, the protest of 2009, for example. 2009, because the regime has a pretense of democracy, people were trying to actually, a lot of people already knew that it couldn't uh, happen. It's just, it's nothing more than a pretense of democracy. But nonetheless, a lot of people tried to change, reform the country using democratic processes. And the main demand during those protests was, where is my vote? These days, nobody is talking about their votes anymore. And uh, people are actually, people's demands are not possible or feasible within the current political structure. That's the most, I think, uh, my uh, most important take. And this is interesting. So they don't even want to vote in it. They want the system to go away. Not just vote. They are challenging the core values of the political structure. And they know that the regime cannot change its DNA. The regime cannot change its core values, and uh, how we end up... Is there a chance for glasnost, perestroika, uh, hopefully well, going towards the end and totally collapse? We, we tried it, actually, Ayatollah Rafsanjan, Hashemi Rafsanjani, the president at, at the time, he called uh, his cabinet Sazandigi, which is a direct translation of perestroika. But the current supreme leader is completely against it, he thinks uh, that Prestroika was and Glasnost was a, a complete failure. For the Soviets? Uh, because they look at the Soviet example and not to do the same thing, right? I mean, because they know what they look like. I mean, that's exactly. Like, so he's against it. So at least not during his tenure. But uh, on the, uh, the other half of the glass, uh, he's too old and uh, not in very good shape. So. Well, thank you so much, Mohammed, for sharing your thoughts. Um, I do have a couple more questions, but I'll hold off, and I'd like to open it, up, open it up to the audience. So if anybody has a question, I see one in the back over there, and then um, the lady in the red. Is it on? It's on. Good. Um, I, I'm, my name is McCluskey, Deirdre McCluskey. I see a theme, and I, I, I'm f extremely interested in this idea that in real traditional Islam, there are overlapping voluntary jurisdictions. And, and as you said, there is, as it were, voluntary taxation. People make, um, people make contributions. Is it true that when the Iranian government got control of the oil, it suddenly was freed from the control of, of taxation or voting or voluntary taxation, all of which convey individual wills to the government. If, if, if you have foreign aid, that's often a problem with foreign aid that comes from somewhere else. If you have oil, if you own the, 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 the copper mines, the 
elite is freed from being concerned with ordinary opinion. Uh, Professor McCluskey, first of all, I see a lot of friendly faces here, a lot of friends, and uh, but seeing you made my day. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thank you I so mean much. it. You're very uh, secondly, that's exactly what happened, and uh, it was by design because uh, before they seized power, Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Mutahari, both they were designing that to be the case because they thought for religious leaders to be at the mercy of people's money, they couldn't take any strong positions, and they wanted strong positions, free of the masses' whims, and because they knew better because a philosopher king knew better. But a philosopher king should, not, should never be at the mercy of ordinary people, because who wants those constraints? That's exactly what they uh, tried to do. Um, we have another uh, question here, yeah. I am uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. As I see the recent events and going on now month after month, I'm admitting to the possibility that maybe we're seeing the last Veliatifaki and that the demonstrations may coincide with his uh, otherwise inevitable passing, that the people will not allow the appointment of another supreme leader. The way that that could happen is if at some point there's a fracture between the Pazdaran, the Basij, and Artesh. Uh, particularly Artesh, which has got to be tired of firing on their cousins and mothers and, and brothers. And, and until I see one of those elements sort of defecting to the citizens, it's hard to view a potential revolution. And I'm wondering, when you guys look at both the death of the Supreme Leader and the possibility that we may be facing regime change uh, pretty soon, is there any chance that the security agencies will fracture, that the elites will fracture and stand up against particularly the Pazdaran? Um, well, uh, absolutely, uh, you're right about that. And uh, the way I see it, there's no... Uh, Easy answers, and uh, however, I'll make uh, just a small point that I, I don't think that's the main uh, problems, main problem with countries, with societies like Iran, because we've had it in the in the region. Afghanistan experienced it. Iraq experienced it. They actually got to get rid of the tyrants, and uh, they got a chance to have a democratic. Uh, country, more democratic, but they didn't really end up with something like that. Why? Uh, I think that has something to do with, we call it, uh, Fadal is here, Tamin is here, we call it the long war, and the long war, we've been fighting that war to uh, introduce people to the idea of liberty and of a free society, to defend those ideas and institutions. And I think that's the most important thing. And today, I look at the Iranian society, I'm happy, despite all the hardship, all the sad stories we see, the developments every day. But I think we're ahead in that game, because the society at large, 
these ideas, these institutions are widespread. Be people actually believe in these ideas because compared to the revolution of 1979, this famous, uh, people knew what they didn't want. They didn't want Shah, but they had no idea what they actually wanted. But today, people know exactly what they want. They want separation of mosque and state, in our case, I guess. Uh, they, they want uh, a democratic, uh, they want a constitutional lim constitutionally limited government. Uh, and uh, they want a stop to meddling in the affairs of other countries, like Lebanon and Syria and Yemen and Afghanistan and Iraq and other places. So people are very clear on these points. So however we come to that point to make a choice, I think uh, I, I see a bright future for Iran. And uh, that's, I guess, the best uh, I can offer at the moment. Mohammed shared an interesting uh, observation when we were having uh, lunch today. That, um, uh, the ideas of classical liberalism have become quite popular in Iran, despite the fact that they have been rejected to some extent on some American campuses, I mean, to bring into some cultural issues here today. But really, when the people who go through a dictatorship uh, look into ideas of religious liberty, ideas of freedom of speech, the basic fundamental values, which are the founding values of the United States. Uh, and I think w w what you're pointing out is that the regime lost a big chunk of society, and there is enough intellectual uh, will to really build a democratic Iran. How does the regime sustain itself? With, of course, the machinery of you know, all the military structures, I mean, Pastoran, Besiege, and Revolutionary Guards and all that. But how long can, you were also mentioning today that with the economic uh, problems, they will not be able to maybe sustain that, finance all that, you know, patronage forever. So uh, I think the answer to the question, I mean, is there liberty, probably there won't be another revolution in a few next months in Iran, but there is a slow decay of the regime. That's why I think the Soviet example is interesting. That you know, you would think that the Soviets would live forever, but no, they collapse ultimately. And with with, with the very dynamics of the regime, and less and less people still believed in the big lie. I think we, we, we're seeing that dynamic here. Is that uh, absolutely? Right? And we already, by the way, uh, we already see a lot of infighting too among those islands of power, as we call them. I see um, two more two more questions. The lady in red and the one next to her. Next. Uh, thank you so much. My name is Marianne Broed. I am a, a visiting, visiting Fulbright fellow from Afghanistan, uh, born and raised in Afghanistan. Um, uh, thank you so much for the informative session today. Um, my question is, and I guess you agree to the comment first. Um, we are seeing a very um, interesting women's movement in, in that part of the world, in Iran, in Afghanistan, in Sudan, in um, multiple parts of um, in Arab world, to put it that way. Um, and I think it's very important to recognize this agency of women, to recognize this component, this important component of women's leadership, women's resistance. Um, and it's not only to, again, um, reiterate, it's not only about the women's clothing. I, for example, in Iran, they, 
um, it's the movement of women in Iran, it's not only anti-hijab movement. Women in Iran have been fighting for their basic rights for 40 plus years. Right now, they cannot uh, run for public offices, they cannot be president, they cannot be judges, they can go to the uh, sport stadium and all, all that. So there, are, there is a systematic discrimination against women and women are uh, fighting back. They, are, they want their, their right, their full right. Um, it's not only about hijab. Would you please touch a little bit uh, on this the, the gender component of this resistance and why dictatorship autocratic regimes like Iran and Taliban and Afghanistan, they are very fearful of women. They are scared of women more than, um, more than uh, any other um, factors in the, in the society. And I guess it's, again, it's more than just the way they, they clothe, right? Um, and I guess this brings me to my um, second question. Um, while authoritarian regimes, they are very great at mobilizing, at supporting each other, at feeding and breathing each other's narratives, despite their, uh, their huge differences they have. Um, why the free world uh, struggles to do so? Why we cannot, um, uh, we cannot mobilize uh, and support each other the way we should to, um, or share best practices, support each other's narratives? how we can bring that unity and do you also think that this uh, one reason could be the fact that the western world or the free world um, also suffers from a kind of what they call double standard um, for example the um, the amount of attention and support ukraine people's struggle gain and it's very their their, their um, war is um, important and they are on the right side of the history but um, the support they gain is very different uh, from the support, let's say, people in Iran uh, receives or people in Afghanistan receives. Um, or how we can, despite this um, double standard, how we can mobilize, how we can support each other. Thank you. Thank you, of course. Um, I would say that uh, Iranian women already have won the most important war because the, the regime, they banned discussion of, of, uh, or criticism on a lot of important issues, especially when it comes to women. Uh, because when you have a philosopher king, a divine ruler that knows best what's good for you, and he already made up his mind, uh, there's no arguing with him anymore. And uh, that was exactly the case when it came to hijab, for example, or for women to be judges. We already had uh, female judges for many years at that point, before the revolution, I mean. Um, however, by suppressing, by banning, by destroying all the forums to, uh, for these issues to be discussed, they thought they could uh, get rid of the whole conundrum of the problem, but they, could, they didn't. These problems went underground, and uh, the criticism, the, the, the issue, still continue to uh, dominate Iranian society. And uh, Iranian women already have won this battle within, for example, the institution of family. Within families, the hijab issue has been resolved, or the role of women in society already has, has been resolved. Uh, there's no issue on family level 
or among friends. And that creates a very awkward situation, by the way, because uh, you go to a, a party, nobody's wearing hijab, but in the streets, everybody has to wear hijab. That, this uh, awkward situation makes every ordinary law-abiding by in any other situation citizens into criminals, effectively making almost all of the society criminals, law-breaking uh, criminals. Uh, in, in any case, what I'm saying is the Iranian women already have full support of Iranian men. And uh, within this movement, you never see Iranian men to shy away from supporting completely the movement. And the movement has not been just about women or for exclusively for women. But what I'm saying is Iranian men always supported this and promoted this and so forth. Um, so what remains is the law of the land, which is in stark uh, contrast with uh, the values that are held uh, by society. And uh, that's the challenge as, at the moment. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you, Mariam, for your question. And uh, your own story is interesting and important. Hopefully we will speak about that in, in some other incident. You're from Afghanistan and you've seen how Taliban has destroyed women's rights once again, uh, yeah. just in the past one year. Uh, well, uh, I mean, we emphasize both, and me and Mohammed, that regimes like that of Iran actually sometimes go beyond the Islamic tradition to become fully totalitarian or authoritarian. So some of their flaws or sins or uh, crimes are not actually coming from traditional interpretations of Islam. That's true. But on the issue of women, there is a traditional understanding that uh, it's in jurisprudence. It doesn't come from the Quran, I can tell you that most of the time. But medieval Islamic jurists thought that, as maybe most men at the world at the time thought that, the job of a woman is to stay at home, take care of the kids. If she will go out, after, go out of the house, she should take permission from the husband. Preferably, she should not go alone, but go with a male guardian. This was the way society was 1,000 years ago. Um, uh, one of the critiques of that was the great Islamic philosopher, Ibn Rushd. He actually criticizes, this is one reason our states are going down, because we don't, you know, we don't understand that the women have intellectual capacities, and we don't. Uh, nurture that. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he's a very interesting critique back in medieval Spain about this. So it was there, uh, but for now, for regimes like Iran and Taliban, preserving it as it was written and as they think as it is, is one of the battles that they want to really uh, keep on fighting. Because if it doesn't happen, a woman walking around without a male guardian and not necessarily wearing a hijab by her very presence, she's saying, I'm not practicing this religion in the way you define it. The very fact that she, she's just walking out there shows that. Although I, I, I should say, even they actually go beyond sometimes the Islamic tradition. For example, in Islamic tradition, hijab is meant for Muslim women, but not necessarily for non-Muslim women. But they make it the law of the land and you know, impose it on everybody. But there is a problem with interpretation here and the traditional interpretations of Islam too. But the reason why they got so obsessed with this is I think patriarchal instincts and also the idea that we are rejecting everything. And, and a woman depend, independent, having the same equal rights with men under the law and uh, choosing the way she will dress, which a lot of Muslims think is, is, is what it should be. And even you can make an argument for that with a certain interpretation of the Quran. 
But that's not what they, they think what it is. And, and in Iran, especially with the anti-imperialist uh, narrative, the independent, educated woman became the symbol of modernity, right? And that's precisely you want to uh, defy and, and reject. Of course, you want other things of modernity, like nuclear bombs or whatever, that kind of stuff. So you, you want certain things, but not the cultural aspect of equal rights for everybody under the law. Thank you, Mustafa. That was a great question. And um, perhaps we should do a forum then on why authoritarians are scared of women all over the world. Um, but we have a couple more questions. Um, we have one, the gentleman in the green, and then um, the lady in. Thank you. Um, my name is Ali Sajodi from Voice of America. I just had a follow-up question from professor on religious taxation. Uh, looking at the new budget of the government, you will see thousands of billions of tumors dedicated to seminaries and to the uh, religious institutes. How do you interpret this one? Does it mean that they are losing their ground or they are so eager to get the other taxes to use? Uh, actually, I think, uh, thank you for the question. And so nice to see you finally, uh, because we've been in touch uh, ever since I was in Iran. And uh, so good to see you. Um, I think uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Mutahari and also Ali Shariti, all of them uh, paid attention to this point. They thought it, it was for the religious authorities to be able to be strong, to take strong positions. They had to have, a, uh, have access to public budget. And that is probably why Ayatollah Khomeini welcomed. That is one of the reasons he welcomed this central, centralized uh, Marxist-Leninist uh, structure of the government. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, the, this year the budget just came out, and uh, they are increasing uh, the budget of all the seminaries and uh, propaganda institutions and uh, other institutions like that. All the Pravdas and, and the yeah, security forces. Hi, I'm Deborah Weiss. Thank you for doing this panel. Um, this is dovetailing on this young lady's question here, I guess. A lot of people speculated that the reason Biden hasn't said anything about the um, protests in Iran is because he was holding out hope for the, to re-enter the JCPOA. Now that I think it's pretty clear that's dead and he's still silent. I was wondering if you think that if he did say something, would that help? And what other things uh, can Americans, and specifically this administration, do? Uh, thank you for saying that. Yes, uh, and uh, he wouldn't be the first US president to keep silent when it comes to supporting Iranian uh, efforts uh, against the tyranny of uh, the regime. Um, however, uh, I, I don't think we uh, talked about uh, this, the U.S. politics and the role and how and the position uh, about all of this. And uh, it, JCPOA, uh, at least the way they went about it in Biden's administration, it was more or less very ineffective, even if it happened. You mean Obama? Uh, no, I mean, the one they were try negotiating and trying to resurrect 
and resurrect would be, I think, a good way of describing it, uh, because it uh, didn't have anything uh, to it. It would be probably just something to declare that as a win, I guess, in the win column. And uh, it is worth mentioning, probably as an Iranian living in Iran for, for a lot of years, uh, when it comes to US policy in regards to Iran, uh, they always talk about Iran. Whenever they talk about Iran, they're actually talking about a regime, but their policies are actually hurting the people. Because the regime, when you have access to a lot of oil and gas reserves and other uh, natural resources as well, you have a lot of friends uh, around the world. And uh, many of uh, the families of the leading, uh, the you know, ruling class in Iran live actually in North America, in Europe and other places, and they live very good lives. Uh, you so just reminded me today that you couldn't, in Iran, publish about liberty because of the U.S. sanctions. Is that correct? I mean, you couldn't find the website for it. Is that correct? Uh, the web server? Everything. Uh, for example, when I wanted to uh, enroll in a conference or participate in an online course, first of all, there's no Iran listed as if we don't exist. And uh, we do, uh, by, by the way. Uh, but also, uh, Yes, we had to. We modeled a lot of our efforts after Cato Institute, by the way. For example, we loved the Cato Unbound. We created a publication uh, modeled after it, libertarianism.org. We have a platform called Bourgeois, inspired, of course, uh, of uh, your uh, Professor McCloskey's uh, trilogy, the Bourgeois uh, trilogy. And uh, we called it Bourgeois, and uh, it is probably the biggest, most popular, certainly. Uh, publication of classical liberal and libertarian uh, literature in Persian. We had to move it every year or every other year because of the sanctions. We couldn't receive any funding, of course, because of sanctions. We could, uh, the list is endless. I can talk about it uh, in length. But uh, however, the regime throughout all of those years, they've been selling their oil. Actually, as we speak, the export of uh, oil in the past few months has increased, not decreased. So those to tell you the way these sanctions are designed and enforced, uh, they're just putting pressure on ordinary people. And I think Iranian people have demonstrated beyond any doubt that they do not support the current regime. And uh, I think it's time, probably, for the U.S. politicians to, to, to hear their voice. Uh, we don't want, uh, necessarily, we don't want uh, military intervention. We don't want, uh, you know, democratic institutions to be exported to Iran, things like that. Just acknowledge that we exist and let us live. And well, don't even say something. Just, you know, acknowledge that we... And don't uh, sanction the people, but the regime. So, exactly. And be smart in that. Yeah. If you want to, yeah. So I know that there are a few more questions in the crowd, but we're almost out of time, so I'm so sorry. But I do, before we end, um, I do have a question for you, which is basically the title of this forum, which is, um, is there a future for liberty in Iran? What do you think? Uh, I think there is. And uh, I, ex I touched on this uh, very briefly, uh, because, in my opinion, mainly because 
these values, these ideas, these institutions are already widespread in the Iranian society. Ordinary people actually demand individual autonomy. That's a big thing, especially in our region. And uh, they demand, they defend equality of genders. And uh, we, they want freedom of speech. They want separation of church and state, uh, uh, mosque and state again. And uh, this is quite an achievement, I think. And uh, another thing to uh, at least warms my heart is that uh, unlike a lot of uh, some places in the world, including the United States, liberal in Iran, it almost means libertarian. So the way it, it's not just classical liberalism, it's a proper classical liberalism. That's how it is understood. And it is, and uh, when I got started, when I uh, published the first of John Locke, I uh, mentioned there was no demand for it. And uh, some of John Locke's had been translated, but they were, they were out of print for, a long, for many years. But these days, uh, though that literature is read over and over and over, and uh, I think there is a future. When you see, let me finish by saying that, when you see during a widespread anti-state movement, the anthem of that movement is a poem you know, Persian folks, we're all about poems. And that poem actually criticizes central planning and, uh, uh, you know, uh, controlled economy, planned economy. There's a poem against it, and it is viral, and everybody is talking about it. You know you did something right. And you know you have, hopefully, a future. Well, thank you so much, Mohammed, for joining us today. It's good to see you here safe and sound. Thank you all for joining us in person. And for those online, thank you again uh, for joining. Um, for those of you who will be using social media, please use CatoFP as the hashtag. Um, and thank you again for, for joining us in today's forum.